So we're here in Paris for INC2, the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee on the Treaty to End Plastic Pollution. What does good EPR legislation look like? And we've been told actually INC stands for impossible not to commit, and that is indeed the truth. We are working against the clock. We have to end plastic pollution. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is a once-in-a-planet opportunity. We've got to see progress, we've got to see ambition, and we got to see redesign, packaging, products, incentives. We have to have the right to repair, the right to reuse and to refill. That is what we're here to do. Let's get it done because we can and because we are on this planet together. I'm Marcy Trent Long. Welcome to our Season 17 Global Plastics Treaty Negotiations. We partnered with Break Free from Plastic BFFP to produce this series. The second meeting of the International Negotiations Committee, INC2, took place with the lofty ambitions just outlined by UNEP Chief Inger Anderson. But the first three days of these plastics treaty negotiations were mired in political antics. As one of our guests who attended the meeting says, Like a kind of roller coaster, getting buckled up, strapped in. Um, INC1, it was like the bit where you're going up the kind of first big peak. I would say INC2 was probably the bit where you go over the peak and then you're like hurtling into the unknown. Any commitments under the Global Plastic Treaty will eventually be adopted as national targets by the signatory countries and then translated into national action plans to implement the programs and strategies for meeting those targets. UNEP is planning on finalizing the treaty by 2024 over the next few INC meetings. So to continue our focus on how reuse, reduce, and refill will be highlighted in the treaty negotiations, we wanted to bring back Marianne Ledesma, zero-waste campaigner with Greenpeace Southeast Asia in Manila. Marianne attended the INC meetings in Paris, and we wanted to get her thoughts on how that went. We also invited Christina Dixon, Ocean's campaign leader from the Environmental Investigation Agency, to talk in more detail about the action steps and types of language needed to get the treaty moving in the reuse, refill, and repair direction. So here's my conversation with Marianne and Christina. Enjoy. If there's some kind of an anecdote story that about the negotiation that gives a sense for the maybe the chaotic nature at the beginning, but luckily turned it around at the end. And the, the reason that's important, of course, is that this is a process, right? All these countries have to agree on something that we hope includes the reuse, repair, and redesign. I think um, from my perspective, things really um, became clear that perhaps weren't clear before, you know, some of the positioning of different countries. Um, so, for example, you know, it's not a surprise to anyone, of course, that the big plastic producing and oil producing countries are now throwing up roadblocks to what's essentially a very speedy timeline. And uh, now we're seeing some of the kind of true colors being exposed to the countries that don't want that fast timeline. Um, and there's obviously different motivations for why that might be. But what happened at INC2 was that 
uh, different countries used kind of the rules of procedure. So um, the rules of procedure are basically um, that they're what govern how the treaty will be negotiated. So they're critically important because it kind of outlines everything from, you know, what do we call a majority? What's required for a vote? You know, how do we define different groupings of countries? How do we how do we run this process? Um, and if you don't know the rules of the game, it's incredibly hard to play it. Um, and so because the rules of procedure weren't officially adopted, they were only provisionally applied. Um, different countries used that as a tool to derail the negotiations. Um, so that was quite frustrating because it meant um, in a five day meeting, you know, we were getting to day three and we hadn't even started discussing plastics yet. Um, and you've brought all of these um, governments uh, and other stakeholders from all around the world at great expense to a hugely expensive city. Um, people have traveled from as far away as Palau to get there. Um, and then on day three, you haven't even talked about the thing that brought you there. So um, I, in terms of the mood, I think that was really difficult um, and frustrating for some of the smaller delegations in particular that weren't really invested in some of the geopolitics. In terms of how the negotiations went, that was something that swallowed two whole days and actually most of the night uh, with people kind of locked up in a room trying to figure a way out of this gridlock. And I would say the mood did improve throughout the week and there was a much more collaborative spirit. Uh, and at the end of the day, we did get to discuss everything that was on the table for these negotiations. Marianne, what, what was your view, especially because you're obviously you're coming from the view of Southeast Asia, and maybe you can comment a little bit about the procedural issues uh, that were being discussed, which is kind of that consensus versus voting and what that means for Southeast Asia. There were several instances when you realize how it takes just one country, not even several, not even uh, two. It just takes one to delay, delay the entire process or derail any attempt at, um, you know, uh, any real progress or a systemic solution or reducing production. Um, so having this uh, voting and consensus debate is vital, especially for smaller states that may not have uh, as much um, geopolitical power. And um, I think the whole UN process, they do have these principles where every state is sovereign and um, equal in, in this whole procedural meeting. But in reality, of course, there are countries that have more weight and have more power. Uh, when we go into voting versus consensus, if we were to go for voting, that really gives smaller states and uh, other countries from regions that uh, may not have um, as much of a say on, on a global stage, uh, that power to really decide um, on how things move forward on, and to really represent themselves when we're making key decisions that affect the entire uh, planet. So voting will be vital and hopefully, um, the global treaty comes away with um, this this provision uh, really being about voting, right? Because power to vote also uh, relates back to the control measures, right? For instance, it's global getting rid of the toxins, all of the issues that are some of the key issues on the table. Can you do that as a global commitment, or is it going to be like the Paris Agreements that bottoms up? approach of figuring out what's right for each country? Yeah, I would say that it's it's fair to say that the countries that are pushing for a consensus-based model, um, not entirely, but for the most part, are countries that would have 
um, the most to lose in terms of uh, their domestic production industry for plastics. Um, so, uh, and it's not just about kind of current production, it's also about projected future production. It's about investment in infrastructure, um, lock-ins that are based around things like subsidies, which have enabled um, the development of kind of new-ish uh, plastic production facilities, um, which still have quite a long lifespan on them. Um, and so transitioning away from that will create issues. So, um, you know, I'm certainly not saying that there's not a kind of justification for this. Um, however, you know, if we're serious about meeting our climate targets, if we're serious about 1.5 degrees, for example, considering the massive um, contribution of plastic production and the, the kind of life cycle of plastics, but specifically the production side, considering um, how much that's driving climate emissions. Uh, we need to seriously look at that as part of a system change scenario um, and also look at, you know, what are the kind of opportunities and sort of think, well, there must be economic benefits uh, to a transition. Um, and what does that look like? And I think that really relates to this kind of system change scenario that um, was in that Inga Anderson quote. You know, if we're thinking about the infrastructure and kind of new model of production and consumption for the future that's kind of truly sustainable um, or more sustainable than what we currently have at least, um, that's when we're thinking about things like investment in reuse infrastructure, right? Um, thinking about retooling the facilities that currently make heaps of single-use plastics and retooling them for a reuse economy. Um, we're talking about scaling up logistics for reuse and refill, um, making that a model that's actually the kind of de facto model. So there are economic benefits and there are economic opportunities in the system change, um, but they need to be effectively communicated as well so that those countries that are seeing this purely as a, a kind of projected loss um, of domestic production start seeing this actually as an opportunity to opportunity to be part of like an emerging market of a new model of production and consumption. Plastic production is the plan B for the, the oil and gas industry, right? Um, producing more single use plastics is part of the business model for the next 20 years. Um, and so there's a clear vested interest in, in watering down the ambition of the plastics treaty. And it's not just the presence of those countries that are using um, process and other tactics to derail ambition. It's also the presence of um, industry lobbyists who are now starting to turn up in force to the negotiations um, and kind of leverage their influence in that way as well. Um, so kind of the back door as well as what we can see in front of us in that space. From Southeast Asia point of view, who is really a group that has borne the brunt um, of the scourge of legacy plastics uh, left by de uh, the developed world for decades. And that's a quote from the UN actually, which I thought was super interesting. How did, how does it, how did it feel as, you know, a Southeast Asian there? I think that um, there was this um, sense of frustration that we're sort of falling into the same trap that we have been for decades because there were some discussions around waste management and new technologies that are supposed to get rid of all of this plastic waste. And um, it's been happening for so long that um, it's sort of absurd that people still have this concept that, okay, this will be the key solution to answering our problems. Um, from the Southeast Asian perspective, We've seen how that has failed us. It has sort of put us in uh, this dilemma of having to receive other countries' wastes, uh, be the dumping ground for more uh, wealthier states, uh, for one. 
and also be one of the recipients of um, other developing countries trying to um, apply certain or promote certain technologies like waste burning, uh, incineration, waste to energy that, as Christina mentioned, is also um, pretty carbon intensive um, when you look at it. It may solve um, the plastic waste issue, supposedly, but at the same time, it creates whole new problems. Uh, basically just translating plastic pollution from solids to air pollution or carbon emissions. Um, so uh, there are areas or parts of the process where it was really frustrating and also um, disheartening uh, when you think that, oh no, we're going that, down that road again. At the same time, um, just looking at it, it as a campaigner, um, I think Chris mentioned how there were um, a lot of links to climate and plastic. If you actually look at these anti-ambition countries, you'll also notice another pattern other than being plastic producers. You'll see some countries have very uh, concrete relationships with fossil fuels. And not many countries during um, the discussions would mention uh, fossil fuels. Um, if you've heard, in the plenary sessions, only a few actually um, talked about fossil fuel subsidies and removing those. I think that has to be said because our region, as well as other regions, are also severely impacted by uh, climate change or the climate emergency. Um, and uh, that discussion also needs to happen in this space. Um, you'll see how vital uh, this plastic treaty is to the fossil fuel industry because of their presence there. When uh, Chris said that there were industry presence, it wasn't just plastic producers or fast moving good companies or um, petrochemical companies. Uh, actual fossil fuel companies were also in the room and uh, they were really displaying um, and utilizing their influence to um, drive the conversation away from reducing plastic production because that means less profit for them. I mean, plastics is their lifeline. That was such a good answer. You, <laughs> I, I'm going to get back to the monitoring and reporting then and whether or not you feel as though having the IPCC commit, IPCC is the climate change scientific group, right? That now creates these very significant reports in terms of creating credibility for the data, right? So you've been a campaigner for years. There's been 20 years of data and reports, et cetera, that have come out and said, we're trashing our seas, microplastics are dangerous, chemicals are dangerous. But do you think that if we can at least get that monitoring and reporting in, will that make a difference? And specifically, do you think there's any chance that it will include reuse, repair, refill type data, which could also make a difference? Yes, I mean, uh, monitoring, getting baseline information out there will be vital to how effective the treaty is uh, when uh, in practice already. Um, when we're implementing this uh, legal instrument, uh, there definitely has to be basis in the data uh, so that we know that there's progress uh, happening. And it can't just be uh, somebody saying, or one country saying, well, we reduced it by X amount. Uh, if there's no basis in data, 
there's no way to prove how um, how effective they've been and how effective their approaches have been. Um, of course, when it comes to reuse and refill being in monitoring, um, it will happen if it's part of those targets that Chris mentioned earlier. It has to be, um, there has to be actual concrete targets or core obligations for member states to uh, reach a certain amount of reuse and refill or a certain percentage of reuse and refill um, in their own national um, systems or in their own national situation. But yeah, it will only be reflected in monitoring and in uh, reporting if it is something that is being required of the countries. And that's why these targets, um, these uh, requirements and national action plans uh, will play a part. And um, another thing about M&E or monitoring and evaluation is that it also helps us figure out um, in which areas we can uh, direct any uh, support, whether that's um, fiscal or non-fiscal support, um, any uh, capacity building, um, to see if there's any countries that are uh, falling behind for their reuse and refill targets, uh, then they would be maybe able to get uh, more support for it, or at least um, in further discussions in the COPs, maybe we can find a mechanism so that we can drive reuse and refill uh, further up. Another thing is also, I think, just to get a lay of the land as well, because um, there are a lot of different reuse and refill systems that are happening all over the world, um, but there hasn't really been uh, a database to figure out where these are, how effective they are, what percentage of plastics they can potentially replace. Uh, all this data um, would serve all of the member states um, a lot better um, if we had that on hand and then it'll also help us uh, when we want to scale reuse and refill systems. Um, it'll definitely also provide a lot of uh, countries that are willing to uh, standardize reuse and refill systems, uh, even without a treaty. Um, having that uh, global database will be vital. And at the same time, it also helps us uh, figure out uh, which are the most effective models uh, that we should put uh, investments in. Then, Christina, so luckily, they did move over, move ahead and say that they wanted to start a zero draft. And uh, I thought it was interesting that the UN wanted that zero draft to reflect different views on various elements associated with the plastic life cycle, which sounds like a 500-page report to me. How do you view, then, technically, how we're going to incorporate reuse refill then into that zero draft and then eventually into the treaty firstly to manage expectations about you know what text in a treaty actually looks like um because the zero draft is probably going to be quite comprehensive and complicated you know i'm glad i'm not pulling that document together but the thing that will probably be presented in front of us is going to be lots of different options probably lots of different brackets various formulations, you know, is it assured, is it a shall, is it an encourage, um, and these all have different kind of legal implications. But in a sort of general sense, the treaty text itself might be quite skeletal. Um, the areas where things like reuse might be incorporated 
as I see it, um, are in kind of many different levels. And it might be things that end up being in guidelines within the treaties that wouldn't actually be in the kind of body of the treaty text, although there might be a reference to reuse. It might be more that, you know, one of the COPs, the Conference of the Parties, is directed to develop guidelines on reuse, for example, which then creates kind of globally agreed definitions on what, you know, what does reusable actually mean? Um, you know, what does a reuse system actually mean and, and how can that be kind of legally defined? So that would be negotiated at a later date. But in the kind of structure of the treaty, there's quite a few different places where reuse fits. Um, so say, for example, you know, if there was to be targets for the reduction of, of plastic production, usually, you know, I would see that going then hand in hand with also the introduction of targets for reuse. Um, because if you just have a target for the reduction of production of plastics, um, it doesn't articulate how you're going to achieve that, which then opens the door for, for example, material substitution. So you're going to reduce plastic, but you're going to massively inflate paper, for example. So if you have reuse targets also embedded as one of the approaches, for example, as something to be set within a national action plan, you know, you'll reduce production, but you'll also increase reuse. It then kind of demonstrates the how you're going to achieve the production. It's part of that roadmap. But it's also on things like um, kind of product design standards. So um, within the treaty, there will be something around um, product design eco criteria. And so when that relates to products in general, if you take packaging, for example, it could be, you know, criteria on material safety, um, recyclability, um, uh, reusability or compostability. So there's different criteria that might be required. Um, those same guidelines could also be um, applied to reusable packaging. So if we have some actual globally agreed standards for reusable packaging, if we just take that as one sector that's kind of high impact, high priority, that then means that it's much easier for countries and regions to scale up reuse, because if we have a common understanding of what a reusable packaging is, it means that there could be, for example, shared infrastructure, shared logistics for reuse to actually be kind of scaled up significantly to the level that it would need to happen. So those kind of product design standards for me are a kind of key piece of the reuse puzzle within the treaty. And then I think finally, the other piece which maybe gets overlooked is about is around the kind of financing. So um, within the new treaty, there'll be some sort of financial mechanism, whether that's a dedicated multilateral fund or a combination of different financial mechanisms. So that's just like a couple of the things. Um, I think a lot of it will come down to how it's translated into the kind of national action plans, which are a key implementation measure of the treaty. Um, but certainly at the global level, a kind of the treaty can drive that global understanding of what does reuse actually mean when we're talking about reuse systems, um, promote the guidelines, um, create the definitions, which then make it kind of workable and replicable at a global scale. Um, and then countries will be, you know, pushing towards their own kind of national targets that are legally binding within the treaty. I presume they'll have some different language choices. And, and, and maybe it's something that doesn't get finalized in the treaty and you set up the standards committee i don't know is that do you see that how do you see that playing out yeah the, there's definitely a possibility that um this this responsibility gets um assigned to maybe a newly formed organization that will oversee reuse and refill globally um or it could be put under the the purview of an existing organization that does it. Um, that remains to be seen. Um, the great thing about the treaty is that there are very, um, there's a whole section of potential elements 
uh, that the UN released that talks about reuse and um, creating a real circular economy. So that's uh, what we want to push forward and hopefully more and more countries support it. We just have to be, again, be very careful of how it gets defined and uh, that it doesn't get uh, manipulated into uh, something uh, less effective or something that actually just mirrors our current um, system. Yeah, and I was just going to say, so let's wrap it up with that. You know, once again, how do we support reuse refill for the treaty? Yeah, I mean, um, it'll be important, I think, to sort of shine a light on these concrete examples of reuse and refill. And there are many of those, whether it's scaled up reuse and refill systems or smaller but viable models that are waiting to be scaled. I mean, the Global South has a few that are either newly developed um, examples or existing systems like deposit return schemes that have remained in operation for decades. Um, and all of these examples um, can be um, can really be highlighted. I mean, reuse and refill in Europe and North America have also been sprouting up in the past decade uh, with a lot of enthusiasm from consumers. So we need to uh, put a spotlight on these examples, these cases, wherever they are, um, and do so using all the means necessary, whether that's uh, digital platforms or traditional media, or bringing these solutions to communities so people experience them firsthand. Um, so that people also understand that they won't be left behind when we're transitioning away from plastics. There's definitely some communities that would feel a concern about how are they going to access certain consumer goods without um, plastic. Well, reuse and refill offers um, the perfect opportunity and solution for that while ensuring that they still have access to the things that they need. Um, and that can get more people fully on board. And sometimes they don't even realize that they're engaging in reuse and refill systems to um, people recognize uh, that it is these kinds of models. They've always just seen that it's been a part of their lives or it's maybe an older or um, um, I would say tra more traditional practice, but it's um, actually part of the future, part of our um, push forward to sustainability. And I think other than NGOs and reuse and refill companies talking about um, these solutions, the countries where we see these uh, examples where these systems in action can also be champions for reuse in the treaty negotiations or in their own regions because um, there are countries like Chile, uh, Kenya, the Philippines, Vietnam. These are some examples um, some examples of countries that have reuse and refill, um, among others. And there's also cities on the world stage that have great examples of reuse and refill that can showcase uh, these examples and use their platform to reach more people. Yeah, and I think the key is just also as individuals, if you want to support it at the treaty level, support it in your daily life, right? So so go ahead, start using it. The more people that start using it, the more the powers that be, we can call them, <laughs> we'll see that it's a viable option.
This podcast season was hosted by me, Marcy Trent Long, and produced by Carol Mang. A big thank you to our guests, Marianne Ledesma, Zero Waste Campaigner with Greenpeace Southeast Asia, which is a break-free from plastic member organization, and Christina Dixon, Ocean's Campaign Leader at the Environmental Investigation Agency. We partnered with Break Free from Plastic BFFP to produce this series. BFFP has numerous resources on their website about the Global Plastics Treaty. Check out our show notes for those. Jill Baxter is a contributing editor, and Alexander Mobison created the intro-outro music made by using repurposed and recovered waste items. Thank you for listening. Season 17 Global Plastics Treaty will be back again in the fall when the INC meetings continue in Nairobi, Kenya. Again, we have a special logo for this season, so look out for it on our feed. Next, we'll drop some bonus episodes from our Season 16 Cool Agriculture. For the first bonus episode, we partnered with Fair Planet to look at lab-grown fish as a climate change solution and alternative to the overfishing crisis in some Asian waters. Stay tuned and thanks for listening.